Our Father and our God, as we come to this place in which we hear the word of God proclaimed, we recognize that we are thirsty souls who desperately need to drink in the waters of life. And we pray that you would open our hearts and minds to do just exactly that. At the same time, Father, we know that the words of your servant, a servant who is weak before you, need to be enlivened with the power of your spirit. And even in the hearing, Father, apart from your spirit, we hear nothing of value. And so we pray for the pervasive influence of the spirit of the living God taking these words of God and applying them to hearts so that your name would be exalted and Jesus Christ be praised. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Our text this morning is the 14th chapter of the Gospel of John, verses 28 to 31, the end of chapter 14, where Jesus says this, You heard that I said to you, I go away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens you may believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he is nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let us go from here. Get up, let us go from here. It's amazing what phrases biblical scholars get exercised about. Of all, all the deep, theologically significant statements uh, that take place in the Gospel of John alone. Many of them have generated articles and chapters in books and whole books and indeed libraries of books. Passages like John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. You could fill a library with the books that scholars have written about that one verse. And then in chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born, it says, Jesus says, or John says, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Those two verses have kept Calvinist and Arminian scholars off the streets for decades. John 3, 3, Jesus answered and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What's, what's the difference, by the way, between a Christian and a born-again Christian? I don't have time to read all the stuff written about what it means to be a born-again Christian. In fact, I look at the term born-again Christian as a form of theological stuttering. It's kind of like saying pizza pie. You know, pizza means pie. So if you said pizza pie, you're really saying pie pie or pizza pizza. If you say born again Christian, you might as well say Christian Christian. Because, but people have written endlessly about that verse. 
And then, of course, John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The most beloved verse for Christians in the entire Bible, and there are more books written about John 3, 16 than there have been signs showing up in televised sporting events. Verse 31, John 14, get up, let us go from here. Okay, so maybe not whole books and libraries of books written about this birth, but you would be amazed. You would be amazed at the number of scholarly articles focusing on that verse that essentially means, okay, get up, it's time to leave, let's go. Not exactly a theological goldmine, is it? But trust me, a lot of scholarly ink has been spilt on that simple verse. But why? Why? Well, this is the part of the Gospel of John which focuses on the final week of Jesus' earthly ministry. And this particular part is called the Upper Room Discourse. Jesus has triumphantly entered Jerusalem, as we recall, on Palm Sunday. And then a couple of days later, he gathers the disciples together and in John 13, we find a record of it. He gathers them in an upper room, a room that has been prepared for their eating the Passover together. And in eating it, Jesus has invested with new meaning. The, the bread and the wine prefigure the giving of his body and his blood in the sacrifice on the cross. And the Lord's Supper is to be practiced for all time so the church can remember Jesus' substitutionary and atoning death on the cross. And then, and then Jesus teaches the disciples, the 12 disciples, 11 when Judas eventually leaves, and he teaches them in a setting of great intimacy, and he prepares them to be the church when he leaves, to be the servants to one another, to, to bear with the trials which will surely come their way, to persevere until the end. And that's what the Upper Room Discourse is all about. So why, why has this phrase, get up and let us go from here, gotten so much attention by the scholars? Well, it's because Jesus is saying, that's it, we're done here, let's go, it's time to leave. So what's the problem? The problem is they don't leave. They don't leave. And Jesus keeps on teaching. Chapter 15, he teaches about the vine and the branches. Chapter 16, he launches into a major treatise on the person and work of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 17, he prays for them. And then after chapter 17, that's when they really do leave. It's the kind of thing that drives theologians crazy. Why didn't they leave when Jesus said, it's time to leave? Well, let me just tell you something, dear friends. It just shouldn't bother us that much. It shouldn't drive us crazy. Because you all know how long it takes to say goodbye, don't you? <laughs> Talked about this in eConnections this week. You all know how long it takes to say goodbye, especially to those you love. You know how long it takes from the time someone says, well, it seems like it's getting late, maybe we should go, to when they actually pull out of the driveway. It can be endless. 
Uh, we invent phrases for occasions just like that, and ones that we've heard from time to time go something like this, dear, we need to go so these people can go to bed. <laughs> or sometimes it's the other way around, dear, we need to go to bed so these people can go home. <laughs> Get up, let us go from here, and they start, they start maybe to get ready to go. But Jesus isn't finished talking to them. He teaches them about the vine and the branches and maybe they get to the front door. And then he instructs them on the person and work of the Holy Spirit and maybe that gets them to the front porch. And then finally, once they get to the driveway, Jesus prays for them. It takes a while. Sometimes saying goodbye is a process for them as it is for us. And you all know how that works, don't you? So what keeps them so engaged, however? Well, you know, with our goodbyes, it's usually about catching up on the news of, uh, of mutual friends and family. But what keeps these disciples engaged is nothing short of glorious. It's a glorious goodbye. It's a goodbye filled with God-honoring, Christ-exalting, believer-encouraging words of grace and truth. The entire rest of the Upper Room Discourse continues in that vein. But even in the text that we have before us this morning, we have the elements of this glorious goodbye, a glorious goodbye that feeds our souls far more than the leftovers feed us that we usually give to our guests when they leave. The first element of glory in this goodbye is the glory in the promise. You heard that I said to you, Jesus says in verse 28, I go away and I will come to you. Now we've heard this before, haven't we? This is the way the chapter opened. Uh, verse 1 says, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, listen, for I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus, from the beginning of this chapter, is preparing them for his leaving. And so he gives them this glorious promise. He will leave, but he promises his return. But in the process, his leaving is good for them because he goes to prepare a place for them, a place in his Father's house, the place of glory. And when Jesus returns, it will be to receive them, to bring them with him to, with him to this place of glory. And so this long goodbye is a glorious goodbye. Yes, he's leaving, but he's leaving with a purpose, a glorious purpose, a glorious purpose which includes them and a glorious purpose which includes us. Yeah, you should say amen. Let me ask you, are you encouraged by that promise? Or are you so preoccupied with the here and now that you've forgotten about the then and there? You know, we at the Village Church are building a community of forgiveness, purpose, and what? Hope in Jesus Christ. And this promise is all about hope. If you believe in Jesus, if you trust in him alone for your salvation, this great hope is for you, just as it was for them. And it's a hope that overflows anytime we have to say goodbye to our believing loved ones, whom we know that a place is prepared for them too, because Jesus had left. 
And when he returns, he will gather his elect from every corner of the globe and, and deliver his kingdom, and he will, his return will indeed be glorious. A great truth that gives us confidence and hope, a great hope for our loved ones as well as for ourselves. This is a glorious goodbye because of Jesus' glorious promise. Then verse 28 continues, If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Jesus here is talking about his ascension. About uh, the time, 40, year, 40 days following his resurrection, the ascension is when he ascended to the Father. Now I have to say, a lot of ink has been spilt by the scholars on this verse as well. Uh, those groups who have strayed from historic Orthodox Christianity, those who deny the deity of Jesus Christ, have often cited this verse as a proof text. Because Jesus says, for the Father is greater than I. Jesus seems to be implying that he is somehow a lesser being than God himself. That he is a creature. That he is a created being, not eternally existent as God. Those groups would include the Arians back in the early time of the patristic period, one of the first heresies that the early church encountered. It includes the Socinians, which arose during the 16th and 17th century. They were sort of the precursors of the Unitarians. They include the Jehovah's Witnesses who deny the deity of Jesus Christ and others who deny the deity of Christ. But if you have been following along in our studies in the Gospel of John, you would know how fallacious that claim would be, that Jesus is somehow less than God. His deity is shouted from the pages of the Gospel of John, as it is in other Gospels as well. Indeed, the very opening verse in this Gospel proclaims his very deity. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and what? The Word was God. And then in John 1.14, Jesus is identified as the Word become flesh. Jesus is God incarnate. And in fact, in John 8.58, he uses the covenant name of God, reserved only for God himself, when he says that he is I am. Whereupon the Jews, who understood exactly what Jesus said, tried to stone him to death for blasphemy. And there are many other passages in the Gospel of John that we have seen. The Gospel of John forthrightly declares the deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus is God incarnate. Then what does Jesus mean when he says, If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. It's simply because in the incarnation, which is taught so wonderfully in John chapter 1, that involved Jesus leaving his glory behind taking upon himself the human nature and emptying himself of his prerogatives as the Son of God, as part of God's redemptive plan, he took the lesser place, condescending to our decrepit humanity. But now he's going back. He's going back to glory. He's going back to the Father. He's returning to his rightful position in the midst of that glorious presence. This is the Jesus that John sees in his remarkable vision in the book of Revelation. 
In chapter 1, beginning in verse 12, John says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. Yes, Jesus in all of his glory. Jesus described the way the Ancient of Days is described, as a matter of fact, in the Old Testament. This is Jesus who is, in fact, God incarnate. This is what Paul refers to in his wonderful hymn that he records in Philippians chapter 2. When he speaks about Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Amen. The word Lord is the word that is ascribed to God himself. And so Jesus had left that glory behind only so he could return to the Father and once again experience all the glory of the Father. And that, dear friends, should thrill our souls. In verse 28, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced, Jesus says, because I go to the Father, because the Father is greater than I. They and we should rejoice because Jesus was going back to the Father. Let me ask you this question. How often do you think about the ascension? You know, from those in liturgical churches, or from liturgical churches, they probably think of it more often than most evangelicals. You know, there is an ascension day. The problem with ascension day, 40 days following Easter, is because it takes place during a weekday. And so the church usually doesn't pay a lot of attention to things that happen on, like, Thursday. But sometimes we'll call attention to it on the closest Sunday and to call, it, call it Ascension Sunday. But Jesus is saying that Christians should rejoice over the fact that Jesus would go back to the Father. Does that thrill your soul? It should thrill your soul. It's glorious. There is glory in the Ascension. And then the next element in the text, in this glorious goodbye, is what I would call the glory in believing. Verse 29, Jesus says, Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens you may believe. You know, this is probably the most concise statement of the role of predictive prophecy that we see in Scripture. Here's how it works. The prophet speaks the word, proclaims what will happen in the future. And when that comes to pass, it is designed to evoke belief, to produce faith, to provoke us to trust God. Why should we trust God? 
because what God said would happen actually did happen. In fact, to not believe God under those conditions would be the essence of sin, the essence of unbelief. So Jesus has told them he's leaving. As a matter of fact, he's very explicit about what is about to happen. In Matthew chapter 20, we read, for instance, this is one of several passages we could refer to. Verse 17 and following, as Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him, and on the third day he will be raised up. There it is, predictive prophecy. Jesus will go to Jerusalem. Then Jesus will be delivered to the priests and the scribes and condemned to die. That Jesus will be handed over to the Gentiles. That Jesus will be crucified. And on the third day, Jesus will be raised from the dead. How much more explicit can you be? Well, now, let me ask you this question. Did the disciples understand what Jesus was saying then when he said it? Not so much. In fact, on one occasion when Jesus told them these things, Peter rebuked him for saying such a thing. The disciples were pretty much clueless. But, but basically, as, as you all know, people tend to believe what they want to believe or what they expect to, be, to believe or to happen. So when Jesus was taken into custody by the Jews and delivered to Pontius Pilate, the, the disciples cowered in fear and hid themselves. But when Jesus was raised from the dead, then they believed. Amen. Then they believed. Even Thomas believed. Because Jesus had told them what would happen. And when it did happen, exactly as he described it, they believed. And in believing, you know what they did? They went out and changed the world. The world is a different place because of their faith. And that's why faith itself is such a glorious thing. It's not just faith in faith, it's faith in Jesus. Believing the glorious God did the glorious thing by sending his son to be the incarnate son of God and the son, that the son of God died on the cross, gloriously paying for the sins of all of those who would ever believe in him and that he gloriously rose from the dead just as he told them he would. Believing in Jesus then becomes a glorious means to being reconciled with God, the glorious means to eternal life, the glorious way in which the people of God, the church, change the world. Now I have told you before it happens, Jesus says, so that when it happens, you may believe. And so let me ask you, dear friends, do you believe? Do you? Do you believe Jesus is the incarnate Son of God? Do you believe that he was delivered to the Jews and condemned to death? Do you believe that he was handed over to Pilate for crucifixion? Do you believe that he was in fact crucified, dead and buried? Do you believe that he rose from the dead? He said all of those things would happen. Every one of them came to pass. And all the evidence is that in fact Jesus was crucified, dead, buried and raised from the dead. And Jesus' prophecy was meant so that not only those disciples, but you and me as well would believe in him. 
And we are all under just as much obligation, by the way, to believe the fulfilled prophecy of Jesus as they were. Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. Glorious faith. Next in our litany of elements in this glorious goodbye is the glory in the victory. Verse 30, I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. Uh, there are two things that Jesus says in this verse. First, that the ruler of this world is coming. Take a wild guess who that refers to. That refers to Satan. Now, the events that are about to unfold are under the control of the enemy of our souls, Satan himself. His arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, all of it. Remember, perhaps, Luke chapter 22, verses 52 and following, Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and the elders who had come against him, this is during his arrest, have you all come out with swords and clubs that you would against a robber while I was with you daily in the temple? You did not lay hands on me. And then he says this, but this hour and the power of darkness are yours. The hour of darkness belonged to Satan. That was his time. But the second thing Jesus says is this, and he, that is Satan, has nothing in me. Satan was in control, orchestrating these sinister events, but Satan had no idea that he was playing right into the hands of Almighty God. As Peter says in his great sermon in Acts chapter 2, this man Jesus delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And so when Jesus says, and he has nothing in me, Jesus was saying that, that all of, of Satan's conspiratorial shenanigans were nothing more than tilting at windmills that Satan could do nothing against Jesus. Why couldn't he? Well, because Jesus was completely innocent of any wrongdoing, any transgression, any sin. Jesus was altogether holy and righteous. And Satan, whose name means accuser, had nothing with which to accuse Jesus. So Satan had no power over the eternally begotten Son of God. And that's why the grave couldn't hold him. The author of the book of Hebrews puts it this way in chapter 2 of that book. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death, listen to this, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. In other words, this was the hour of Satan's power, but Jesus had victory over Satan's wiles. And that is a glorious victory. Amen. You should say amen. Hebrews says this in chapter 7, And this is clear still, if another priest arise according, arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. That's a description of Jesus Christ, the power of an indestructible life. And because of that indestructible life, Satan has no hold on Jesus. So Jesus earned a glorious victory, and that's a glorious thought in the midst of a glorious goodbye. 
And finally, uh, there's one more element in this glorious goodbye, and that's Jesus' glorious obedience. Verse 31, but so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Jesus has completely fulfilled the Father's will. He has left his glory behind. He has lived in his humanity, a life that you and I could never have lived. And he has faithfully gone to the cross and not just have been crucified, but he has taken on himself the wrath of Almighty God for the sins of all the human race, paying the penalty for all the sins of all those who would ever believe in him. And he strayed not once from the path that the triune God agreed to pursue in graciously redeeming a people for himself, a path that was laid out in eternity past. And the obedience that Jesus exhibited to the Father was not driven by duty, the text says, but was driven by love. So that the world may know that I love the Father. That's what Jesus says. His love for the Father was the motivating influence in his perfect obedience. And that's a lesson we should all learn sometime, shouldn't we? Like we say, we read in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Or John 14, 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And so Jesus was exhibit A in how and why to obey the Father. He loved the Father fully, implicitly, thoroughly, so he obeyed the Father, as the text says, exactly. And that is a glorious obedience and a glorious encouragement in the midst of a glorious goodbye. And so, dear friends, do you resonate with the promise of Jesus' return? Does this glorious promise excite you give you the confidence, solidify your hope? Does your heart thrill with the thought of his ascension, his going to the Father? Uh, does the idea that Jesus once again experienced the divine glory delight your soul? Do you respond to the prophetic word of Jesus and respond by believing in Jesus, by trusting in him alone for your salvation, trusting in no other source of salvation save Jesus? And do you regard your faith as truly glorious, since your faith is the means by which the glorious life eternal becomes yours? Do you relish the victory of Jesus over sin and Satan? Do you consider Jesus' supremacy over the enemy of our souls a truly glorious victory? Does his victory lead you with confidence to embrace the promises of eternal life? Do you praise God for Jesus' glorious obedience, recognizing that in Jesus' obedience, we have been declared righteous and have the right relationship with God along with the gift of eternity, all because Jesus loved the Father enough to obey him? Do you delight in this glorious goodbye? Our Father and our God, we come to you casting ourselves at your throne in all humility, recognizing that only because Jesus has laid out such glory for us that we can ever have a relationship with you. We delight in that knowledge, and we pray, Father, that you would so enhance our hope and longing for all of these 
aspects of the promises of God to be fulfilled, that we will respond in faith and obedience to the commands of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in so doing, we'll add even more glory to our glorious King. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen.